Broadcasting from the Investor Hour studios and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere you find podcasts for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here's your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today, we'll talk with Cullen Roach. He's really great at explaining complex macro issues, and that's what he'll do for us today. In the mailbag today, questions about gold, free cash flow, trailing stops, and a lot more. And remember, you can call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. For my opening rant this week, we'll talk about balance sheets, as I promised to, and once again, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. So I promised to talk about the five financial clues, and we've talked about free cash flow, margins, and today we'll talk about balance sheets. And this is going to be real quick. There's two kinds of great balance sheets, right? The balance sheet shows you the assets and liabilities of a company. It's, you know, you, you do this in your own life, right? You know how much debt you have. You know how much cash you have in the bank. You know how much money you make. Boom, there it is. Um, so... <clears throat> There are two kinds of good balance sheets to find. One of them is where a company has more cash than debt, right? Because you, you could theoretically pay off all your debt and still have cash left over. So that's a good thing. We all want that. I mean, just think, if you have a mortgage of, you know, whatever it is, $300,000 and you've got 600000 in cash in the bank, you're feeling pretty good. You're sleeping well. Same thing with companies. An example of the more cash than debt, a great one, a current one is, is Berkshire Hathaway. They just put out their, their 10K and their uh, Warren Buffett put out his annual letter recently. And he, he made a special point of explaining why they have so much cash. They have $144 billion in cash and treasury bills. And yes, when you see treasury bills on the balance sheet, it's just like cash. $144 billion in cash and $114 billion in debt so they can pay off all their debts and have, ideally speaking, $30 billion left over. And in Berkshire's case, that $30 billion number is interesting because Buffett says that he and Charlie Munger, his vice chairman, have decided that they always want to have at least $30 billion in cash handy um, at all times, you know, just in case they get a big insurance liability that needs to be paid off. So, you know, really, you could say they have $114 billion in cash that they might use for some kind of an acquisition. It's a, it's a nice little tidy sum in the treasury if they want to do something. So, so that's an example of that kind of balance sheet that's really good. The other kind of example is when a company has more debt than cash, but they make so much money that they easily cover their their uh, interest payments, right? So um, I was just looking at, uh, at the example of Starbucks. And Starbucks has 
Well, just I'm just going to use round numbers, really round numbers, okay? Just call it four billion in cash, fifteen billion of debt, right? Obviously, there is more cash than debt there, okay? I mean, more debt than cash, a lot more debt, you know, um, almost four times as much. And you you might want to look at that and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I don't like that. But it, it I promise you, it really is okay. Um, one of the things that a banker would look at in this situation is look at he would look at the equity value of the company and the company's market cap is over a hundred billion. So, you know, <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Or it's around a hundred billion lately. I have I, I really I don't look at price quotes and market caps every single day. And I encourage you to do the same. You know, don't be too obsessive about looking at that stuff. But anyway, so you know, you got 15 billion in debt, 100 billion in equity. A banker looks at that and says, "Oh, okay, that's good." And, and you know, like a bondholder or somebody, a debt holder or a potential debt holder, that's the way they tend to think about that. So you look at this and you think, "Hmm, how do I think about this? How is this good?" Well, it's good because they earn like their their EBITDA is like just call it nine billion or so. Okay, EBITDA. And then if you go down and you look at their interest expense um, for the last 12 months, it's like not even 500 million, right? So they, they, they got it covered. They got it way covered, 16 times over. That's a lot. So it's, it's fine. You know, it's a really healthy company. Starbucks, it's a great business. You know, the, the coffee probably cost a buck and they sell it to you for five or six. You know, it's a really great business. So... Uh, that's that's how I think about that. Those are the two kind of good balance sheets you can have. And it really is that simple. I'm just looking for that. Um, we'll talk a little bit. We got a good question about free cash flow. So, and, and the question is asking us to take a little deeper dive into it. I'll do that in the mailbag. But if you have any questions about balance sheets, send them in to feedback at investorhour.com and I'll, I'll answer them on the show. The other thing we want to talk about this week, again is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I, I'm taking my cue here from um, Lodovic H., our longtime listener and frequent correspondent, who's asking, you know, how can we anticipate this? What should we do? You know, should we, um, you know, buy precious metals um, and just hang on to them? Uh, what, what, how do we handle this? And he notes the, uh, you know, he says, neon is, is of very high quality, is made... Um, where they're fighting in the Ukraine. And that's a problem for the semiconductor industry. And palladium of very high quality is made in Ukraine. That could be a problem. Um, so, and it, then he says, with the country on the verge of military collapse, you know, what, what about, what, what do we do? And he says also wheat, gas, and oil reserves being destroyed. It's going to be a terrible year, he says. How to anticipate this? Well, the, all I want to tell you this week and what I told everyone in my most recent Stansberry Digest is, you, look, if you're George Soros or Stanley Druckenmiller, you care about these things a lot, right? You're looking at macro issues and you know all kinds of people who can tell you all kinds of things and you're super smart or whatever and this is just your strategy. So if that's you, God bless you. You don't need me telling you anything. Otherwise, the idea that you know, just a run-of-the-mill, ordinary investor like you and me, and I promise I am fairly ordinary. Um, we, we 
do ourselves an injustice. We make a big mistake by always reacting to big headlines. Just because this war in the Ukraine is in the headlines every day, and I mean all day, 24-7, can't get away from it, uh, does not mean that you need to do anything special in your portfolio. It doesn't mean you need to sell this kind of stock and buy that kind of stock or buy more of this and sell more of that. I mean, if you just think about oil, the obvious one, right? It's spiking up. It spiked up again when it opened, um, you know, this past weekend. And what, so what do you do with that? Well, so what if oil's $130 a barrel? You think it's going to 230 or, or 200 or, you know, it's, it's already, we already know about this. It's already priced in, as they can say. Look at, look at oil and gas stocks. They've soared, right? The, the time to buy oil and gas stocks, the time to buy any commodity company is when they're cheap, right? When they're hated, when no one wants them. Uh, and I think that time has passed for oil and gas companies. They're not cheap and they're not hated and everybody wants them. So be careful. Be careful jumping onto, you know, uh, be careful jumping onto a bandwagon is the easiest way to put it. Don't, don't assume that because something big is happening in the world, something big needs to happen in your portfolio. And of course, my assumption is that you're holding something like, you know, maybe you have a 401k, it's got an S&P 500 fund in it, you just keep contributing every two weeks or whatever. You don't need to do anything different. You know, maybe you've got, um, you know, maybe you're managing your own money and you're buying your own stocks individually and you, you own a bunch of really good businesses like Berkshire Hathaway and Starbucks and Costco and all kinds of wonderful stuff. Do you really think you need to do anything different with those? I, I don't think you do. I mean, they've got great assets, great management. They're pounding out money, as Charlie Munger likes to say. And they're some of the greatest businesses, not in the world today, but that have ever existed at any time in the world. So if you own those kind of stocks, I don't, I don't see how you need to do anything different. And all of this, of course, you know, you're, you run your own money. I'm, I'm just telling you what I think, but um, I haven't, I haven't bought or sold anything in my 401k and I haven't, um, I think I sold down, I had, uh, I have a speculative account that's really small that I, I'm in it all the time, right? I just have this small amount of money that lets me do any dumb thing I want and the most I can lose is a small amount. And I haven't even done much with that. Uh, I, it just has a bunch of put options and a few and gold stocks and silver stocks and and I haven't done anything with it. I think I sold a little bit of, just a very little bit of puts, but I still have a huge position. I still have like 85% of it. And I saw a little bit of gold call options, but I still have like 80% of that. So it, 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 you know, I'm not really doing anything. I'm not changing anything. Um, and I, I, unless you're, you know, if you're the kind of investor who wants to change things based on what's happening in the Ukraine, you don't need to talk to me. If you're that smart and you're that nimble, go for it, man. You don't need me. You get what I'm saying? I hope so, because that's all I have to say about it. Just be careful. All right. Let's talk to Colin Roach. Let's do it right now. Mm -hmm. 
My colleague, Dr. David Eifrey, who goes by Doc around the office, first warned we were at the beginning of a brand new inflationary era nearly eight months ago. But it's clear the war in Ukraine could now make it much worse. Gas prices just spiked to $3.61 a gallon nationally, with projections of it soaring from here. The Washington Post admits this conflict will likely, quote, push U.S. food prices even higher, unquote. And Michael Swanson, Wells Fargo's chief agricultural economist, warns that these events, quote, are proof that this will be a multi-year issue. This is not something that will be resolved in weeks or months, unquote. But there's much more to the story because Eifrig worked in the financial markets for four decades and he's gone on record saying he's never seen a crisis quite like this one before us today. And it's why he's making it his personal mission to ensure his urgent message reaches my investor radio listeners today. His mission is to open your eyes to a few critical decisions you should make immediately, which could affect you, your family, and your money for many years to come. For the full details, Doc has posted a free presentation you should watch as soon as possible on messagefromdoc.com. That website, again, is messagefromdoc.com. Messagefromdoc.com. Check it out. Colin, welcome to the show. Good to have you back. Hey, Dan. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, it's been a little while. I think it was like last summer the last time we talked to you. Yeah, I think it's been summer of like 2020, I think, right when kind of COVID was, um, you know, just really starting to flare up. Right. So, yeah, quite a while. So we need to check back in with you. And uh, I'm afraid you might have to put on your hazmat suit for this conversation <laughs> because, uh, you know, we, we're, we're going to be talking about, you know, money and the Fed and things. That's why I wanted to talk to you, um, because this is a. It's such to me, it's such a sloppy topic. You know, there's still this persistent narrative that Fed money printing causes inflation. Uh Um, You see a lot of references to that chart of the balance sheet, you know, just sort of up and to the right. And then the the next sentence will be CPI 7% or whatever. Yeah. And that's not quite the way it works. And I'll tell you how I'm thinking about this. I don't know if you um, if you ever read much about Richard Feynman, the physicist. Mm-hmm. He had this thing like he said, if you're going to teach kids about science, you don't want to use words like friction. You know, they said, why, why do my sneakers wear down? Don't say friction. That doesn't mean anything. This is what means something is if you say, well, there's little pieces of the pavement sticking up. And they grab a hold of the rubber on your shoes and rip it off. Mm-hmm. And they rip tiny little pieces of paper off every time, you know, or of, uh, of rubber off every time you walk. And eventually, you know, it wears away. And that's the kind of explanation that I'm trying to get out of somebody for how the Fed really, um, for example, the common narrative is, you know, that they're holding up the stock market which I'm still scratching my head as to how they do that. Cause I can't draw a straight line. I can't do the Feynman explanation. So I need some of these explanations of the mechanics of this. Yeah. What happens when the fed prints money and buys bonds and does it or does it not cause inflation? I'll try. I'm, I'm no Richard Feynman, but um, I'll try to give you, I'm good at dumbing okay, things yeah. down because I, I'm kind of a dumb guy. So like I need to really 
simplify things to oh. be able to understand them myself. So like, I'm pretty good at dumbing things down. But the thing that, you know, the, I think the explanation that I've found is pretty intuitive for most people is thinking in terms of, especially quantitative easing, it, it's, it's like exchanging a savings account with a checking account, okay? So let's go back to where the asset expansion really occurs, which is when the government runs a deficit, when the government spends, when the treasury spends more than it taxes in, they expand their balance sheet. The overall balance sheet of the overall economy expands because the government is now essentially taking on credit. They're issuing a bond that did not exist. And when they issue that bond, that bond in a lot of ways is a lot like a savings account. It's basically this super safe instrument that earns you some interest. And so from, from the, the very first instance, the real balance sheet expansion occurs when the treasury runs a deficit and, and creates that bond, which is effectively similar to a savings account. So what the Fed does when they run quantitative easing is they're coming in really after the fact and they're swapping now a deposit account for this savings account. So from the private sector's perspective, what's functionally happening is you're swapping this savings account with a checking account. So if I sell my bonds to the Federal Reserve effectively, I'm now holding a deposit that's basically a zero yielding uh, check or saving or a checking account. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I've given them what is functionally my savings account. So when you think of it from that perspective, the whole view of where the real impact is completely changes because from the, from the, the function of the treasury and the deficit spending that originally occurred, well, that's, that's a real balance sheet expansion. That's where if you wanted to call it money printing or bond printing or asset printing mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it, that's where the real asset printing occurs. Whereas with the Fed, everything that the Fed is doing, what they're really doing is they're just changing the composition of all this stuff that was basically already issued. And so thinking of it in those terms, it kind of, when I first realized this back after the financial crisis, it sort of transformed my whole view on monetary versus fiscal policy, because you come to this realization that, well, wait a minute, the Fed isn't the real money printing entity inside of the economy, even though we've all come to this you know, belief that, that it is, when in reality, it's the treasury that is functionally the real money printer. And, and um, this is not to imply that like the, the, the Fed has no impact on stuff because they do, I mean, in a, in a lot of meaningful ways, but from a pure narrative perspective, the whole money printing narrative is in, a, in many ways a fallacy because the Fed, even though they technically do expand their own balance sheet, when they implement this asset swap of ch exchanging the checking account with the savings account, they're taking that state or they're, they're taking that checking account out of the real economy. They're putting it on their balance sheet, and that thing doesn't exist for any practical purpose in in the real economy. Whereas the the balance sheet that matters, the private sector balance sheet, the composition of it has simply changed. I think where people get screwed up is that the Fed and, you know, like Bernanke sat on 60 Minutes and told us all this, right? Uh, the Fed actually does, though, 
you know, they go to the computer and they, you know, magically create money to, to take that, you know, what you're calling a savings account, which is really a treasury bond, out of the market and then swap it for, for a dollar, right? So people think that that printed, you know, dollar that's being swapped is the, the, that's the site that, you know, that's where inflation just happened. Yeah. I think that's where people get screwed up. But you're saying the, the, the new, the real balance sheet expansion occurred at the moment of spending. And this make really, the, you know, when the, when the, the fiscal spending happens, they have, the treasury creates this new debt instrument, et cetera. So what the heck is inflation, man? When, when does it happen? Is it happening? Well, I think right that's, now? this is one of the most interesting things about COVID is that what we've kind of learned from COVID is that who really, what, what federal entity really has the big bazooka? And I think the lesson from COVID versus the financial crisis is that it, it really is the treasury that has the big bazooka because right. the, the Fed did all the same stuff back in 2008, 2009. They expanded their balance sheet by trillions of dollars. And you know they, they did all of these huge programs that they didn't really cause any sustainable high inflation. In fact, we had basically disinflation, which is a falling rate of inflation for <coughs> you know, 10 years. But we, we, we now know definitively that something different happened from co the whole COVID response. And we actually talked about this in, in 2020 about how I expected relatively high inflation to come because mm -hmm. we saw this huge fiscal response, this huge, we, the government ran these huge six, seven trillion dollar deficits. They actually ended up being way bigger than I actually thought they'd be back in, in 2020 when we talked. And that's why I think we're seeing now this, you know, seven, seven and a half percent CPI reading that we're seeing where. Okay. That, that's, I mean, we have this very definitive now, I think, look back at the two different the, you know, the, the big difference between 2008 and 2020 was that the, the federal government, the deficit was something like one and a half trillion dollars. I think the, the rescue package from the financial crisis from the actual fiscal side was like $800 billion. We ran multi-trillion dollar programs for consecutive years in the last two years. So these programs were they were gigantic. They were so much bigger than anything we did in comparison to 2008. And the resulting impact has been a lot more inflation. Now, there's another thought. In fact, our listener needs to know, I have kind of explained it sort of this way that we're talking about uh, in, in previous episodes when we've talked about this. In other words, like what I've said is, is you know the whole asset swap thing that the Fed does, right? They're taking income out of the economy and just putting a checking account deposit out there, uh, and and it's my impression that like the deposit just kind of mostly sits in the the reserve account and doesn't go anywhere because all the money, most of the money in our economy, in fact, is created in the banking system. No, it's lent into existence, mm -hmm. no? and without that lending activity, you know. You, you, you haven't seen inflation, but now we've gotten around that. The government can get around that because as you say, it has the big bazooka, the spender, the spender has arrived, right? So I take what you're telling me then as, um, 
you know, this is this is the real deal. This is inflation with yeah, a capital so what, I. what they're doing, and this is the, another important aspect of, of government deficits, that what they're doing is, let's say, for instance, that I'm the bondholder. Um, I, I own actually a lot of, you know, I own a diversified portfolio of bonds. And let's say that I just happen to be the guy who transacts directly with the Fed. Well, my my propensity to consume is much lower relative to someone, say, who who's earning like minimum wage, um, because I I save a lot of money. I I try to practice what I preach. I'm pretty fiscally um, conservative and prudent. Um, so I like to hold assets and save money. Whereas, so when the Fed transacts with me and they're running a deficit. When they swap the the composition of my portfolio, yeah, I might go out and I might change my previous treasury bond holdings for like a junk bond or something, or a, you know maybe a higher yielding corporate bond, something that's kind of you know roughly similar. And that's what I think a lot of people talk about when they talk about the you know the chase for yield and the Fed pushing people into other asset classes, but. I'm not going out and suddenly, you know, buying more goods and services. Whereas when the government runs a deficit, what they are doing is they're actually taking a deposit from me. So they're giving me a bond, they're taking my deposit and they're giving my deposit to somebody who very likely has a higher propensity to consume. And so what they're functionally doing when they run this deficit is they're taking money from somebody who is essentially just hoarding the money and saving it and giving it to somebody with a higher propensity to consume, thereby creating higher demand for goods and services by running a deficit. And that's, I think that's the big thing that we've seen in the last couple of years is that they basically took you know, $7 trillion and redistributed it from essentially people who were bondholders and gave it to people who were middle class or you know minimum wage type earners and those people they spent all the money and you've seen this with the private savings rate where the savings rate spiked way high following the initial uh, response to covid and it's come right back down and so this was another thing we talked about in 2020 was that a lot of people think that the stock market rally hasn't made a lot of sense when in fact all of this money functionally, it flowed right into corporate coffers because as soon as consumers stopped saving the money, well, all that money, where does it end up? It ends up with corporations. And so corporate profits are at all time highs, um, earnings per share are at all time highs. And so the stock market, um, you know, I think the boom has been much, it's certainly been much bigger than I expected it to be. Um, it's sort of shocking in a lot of ways where the stock market went um, and kind of seems to be maybe mean reverting, you know, at present. But um, it, it, there's a lot of sensibility to what's happened in the last couple of years because corporate balance sheets are so healthy, because the government basically, they printed $7 trillion and essentially handed it to corporations. Right, indirectly through the, through the consumer, right. So let's, let's talk about, so that's, that's the, um, you know, money creation, spending inflation track what what about the other part of this the the other part of the narrative is that um you know fed activity or wherever the money is printed supports the stock market somehow now you you've alluded to it by saying well you know the money goes to corporations the earnings are strong etc um 
but is there any other more direct relationship? And, and, and uh, you know, is that relationship simply, is, is it a function of what the Fed, the Fed's influence on uh, interest rates, for example? Is, is I, where I'm going? It's this one's really tough. There's elements of it. Well, that, there's no straight line, right? That that's where that's that's one thing. I'm sorry, I meant to say, is, is there's no straight line. Yeah. Right? Well, there's this I mean, narrative like, of the Fed supporting the stock market, but you can't draw a straight line from the right. Fed's and part of it is, you know, like I was saying before, that the fact that corporate balance sheets really are healthier means that there's you know, there's a rational reason why the stock market has gone up. It hasn't been. I think. The thing that I think some people allude to when they talk about the Fed manipulating asset prices is the the implication is that there's no fundamental driver of what's going on, that it's all kind of just like a a government-manipulated bubble. And the reality is that when you look at at things like corporate profits, well, there's a rational explanation for all of this. There's, it makes sense that the stock market, you know, surged to record highs while earnings per share were, you know, surging to record highs while corporate profits were surging to record highs. And I think, you know, you can make the argument that, oh, well, you know, even Cohen is saying that the, that's just because the government ran huge deficits and essentially gave the money to corporations. And you could say, well, yeah, there's an element of certainly there's an element of truth to that. And how sustainable is all of this? Um, because the government can't just run, you know, three trillion dollar deficits in perpetuity every year for the rest of eternity um, without something eventually, you know, either causing a huge bubble and crashing or causing bigger problems along the way. But in the last right. two years, at least, I think looking at what the government has done and looking at where the money has flowed, well, the money's flowed to corporations. So, you know, the Fed and all of the stuff they're doing, I think, you know, part of their goal is, yes, to cause this portfolio rebalancing effect where they're trying to get people to, they really want people in the real economy to invest more. They want people to spend more on real investment, funding real, you know, corporation creation and new, um, you know, new investment through like innovation and things like that. That's ultimately the Fed's big goal. And I think a lot of what we end up seeing though, is this, you know, people end up exchanging stuff on secondary markets like the stock market or the bond markets where, you know, what's the real impact on the real economy? Are we all, you know, are we all just shuffling money back and forth here? Or are we having a real impact on the actual underlying corporate fundamentals? And that's where things I think get a lot more, a lot more debatable. And I'm I'm sympathetic to the to the idea that there's certainly some impact. I but it's not this black and white thing where you can't just look at what the Fed has done or what the government has done and say, oh, well, it's all manipulated, because you can look, you can draw a line right to corporate balance sheets and say, well, no corporate balance sheets are fundamentally healthier than they were a few years ago. You can make arguments that, you know, maybe in some ways are, you know, are not as well off as they were before COVID or whatever, but from corporate America's perspective, things look pretty damn good right now. So how sustainable is it? Um, You know, could the government peel things back in a way that will, will actually cause, you know, maybe the opposite type of effect. 
I think there's also reasonable arguments for that. So, but it's not this thing where the Fed has caused all these asset prices to go up for, for no sensible reason. So let's talk about what happens next. Now, on the one hand, um, you, you, uh, you point out rightly, you can't run three trillion deficits forever and just keep printing. But I think one of the, one of the great lessons from you know, Japan, Europe, is that eventually that extra dollar of debt, right? It, it's not stimulative, right? And that goal that you're talking about that the Federal Reserve has, all I can think of is, you know, this, the, this set of tools that they have seems to be really ill-suited to the purpose of stimulating economic activity, which makes a bit of sense to me because, you know, uh, entrepreneurs, as far as I know, entrepreneurs don't sit around and say, you know, I wish interest rates were lower. Mm -hmm. That's like not the main thing on their mind, like stimulating real economic activity and real, you know, like we're talking investments in assets and businesses and, and new economic activity. Um, it doesn't seem to me like these tools that, the, that central banks, you could even generalize further. That's why I cited the example of Japan and Europe. These tools, they seem to be really ill-suited and almost suited to the opposite purpose. In other words, eventually, you know, there's, there's the debt issuance and <coughs> in whatever roundabout way, the monetization of it. And sooner or later, th that extra dollar out there, it's just like less and less and less productive. No, yeah. I mean, I mean it, where, where could, I mean, you're they can't that. be that ignorant, right? You're seeing that I mean, in the, the way that this is causing inflation now, that essentially mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the purchasing power of a dollar now doesn't, you know, is not sustainable because of what in large part the government is doing. And there's, you know, there's a lot of debate right now about what's really causing inflation. And to me, it, you know, it seems pretty obvious. There's there's certainly a supply chain aspect of all of this, but you know the government effectively printed seven trillion dollars in the last two years and just dumped it in you know on the middle of the street in Washington D.C. and it's slowly filtering through the economy now, and we're finally starting to see the impact of all of that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, how sustainable is all of that? And the I think what we're learning now is that you know it's weird how these things sort of ebb and flow over time. We went through this period of low inflation that I think convinced a lot of people that the government couldn't cause inflation, you know, or wouldn't be able to, even with right. huge, huge spending packages. And it's the thing that, again, it's the big takeaway from the whole COVID experience is that you, fiscal policy is really powerful. And there are there are certainly times where I'm sympathetic to it, um, especially, you know, like I think that during the financial crisis, there were reasonable arguments for, for the government running deficits at those times. And there are certain aspects of this are even automatic. I mean, the fact that, for instance, like during a, a recession, tax receipts decline and unemployment benefits increase. So 
by definition, there's sort of an automatic increase in the deficit that you know economists call sta automatic stabilizers, where you're basically getting an increase in the size of the government's deficit just because they earn less income and they end up spending more because of the unemployment benefit increase. So it, there's logical things like that that I think actually you know are stabilizing to some degree, but the 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 kind of scary thing coming out of COVID is that we're realizing that the the discretionary issuance of money through large deficits can have enormous inflationary impacts that, you know, and even looking at like the financial markets, I think you can argue that, you know, when you, there is a fundamental driver of something like the S&P 500 and, cor and corporate profits in the last few years, but you have to ask yourself, well, what happens if the government now peels all of this back? And what happens if the, you know, what happens if the rate of inflation now starts to reverse because the government now isn't, you know, don't, they don't have their foot on the gas pedal. They have their foot kind of, you know, they're kind of starting to tap the brakes. The Fed is starting to tap the brakes with, you know, talk about raising rates and reducing the size of the balance sheet. And you're going to see a big, fiscal drawback in the next probably 18 months because the government is now, I mean, you've seen this with the way that a lot of these um, big spending packages have been nuked. I mean, build back better getting, you know, derailed in the last few months. And you're not going to have, you're not going to have any big fiscal spending packages passed in the next couple of years. I mean, it would be, you know, this is kind of a, a tangent, but it would be really interesting to see what happens in a recession in the next couple of years if we were to have one, because I don't even think we'd have the wherewithal to to respond to it like we did in, you know, during COVID or during 2008. And so it, it's kind of weird how all of this ebbs and flows over time, because we're seeing now the impact of of big, big spending packages and the negative impact that has through inflation. And I think that's going to make things, um, it's going to make things a lot more volatile going through the next few years because you're not going to have the level of government support that I think a lot of people became accustomed to from you know, the post 2008 period and the, the COVID response period. Are, we not, are you saying we're not going to have it for political reasons or because they're just, you know, they're sort of the, the running out of ammo argument, that, you know, the running out of uh, I mean, the, the ability to move the needle kind of. Well, the government, I mean, from an operational perspective, the government doesn't run, you know, like the printing press doesn't run out of ink, <laughs> you know, the treasury, right, right. the treasury doesn't run out of the ability to, to, to print treasury bonds and finance spending. Um, what they run out of is they run out of demand for those things. And you're seeing that through the rate of inflation to some degree. The demand for holding dollars has declined relative to everything else. I mean, that's functionally what inflation is. And more importantly, yeah, you're starting to see that as the rate of inflation increases, the political will for implementing these sorts of things is, okay. is coming to a, a stall. Um, right. I see where you are now. All right. I got that. Um, for me, the next layer is ex-U.S. demand for dollars. I mean, all I hear is, you know, that, that, that there's pr still practically a shortage outside the U.S., that people are, you know, all the demand for U.S. dollars that's been there in, you know, the last 10, 15, 20 years 
is still there. Yeah. So, so how, you know, in well, other words, go ahead. You know, if you, if you think of, um, think of all the fiat currency as, as basically, you know, if you think fiat currencies are basically just, a you know, a, a bad form of money in general, well, the dollar is the least bad of all of them. So, right. you know, what else, like I always talk about people sometimes come to me and they say, oh, well, you know, what happens when the, the U.S. Treasury market collapses? And my response is always, well, what, you know, what else, what's the alternative? What's the alternative right. bond market? What's the alternative reserve currency to the U.S. dollar? Because when you look at all the other options and you've got the, the Chinese renminbi, which nobody trusts except for the Chinese, and, you know, that you've got the euro, the euro has all sorts of problems because like they don't even have a universal bond issued inside of Europe. Um, they still have all their own, you know, we've seen that a rolling sort of euro crisis occurring in the last 10 years where we're not even sure how many members of the, the eurozone are going to be there in 10 or 15 years. So um, what's the alternative? The, the Japanese yen isn't nearly big enough market to be um, a, an alternative reserve currency. So looking at all this stuff on a relative basis, the dollar is the de facto reserve currency just by being essentially the, the least bad currency out of all of them. And, it's, and by being the biggest game in town. Yeah, it's, you know, and it's, it's, so, yeah. it's almost impossible for me to see that over the course of my lifetime even, I think. So, you know, yeah, you can make arguments that China will grow and probably become a much bigger and bigger economy. But, you know, their government is still essentially a communist government that is very untrustworthy in a lot of ways. And so, I, yeah, I, it's hard for me to imagine the dollar not being the reserve currency in 10, 20, 30 years, because there is no alternative. Right. And it's interesting to me, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I have you and other, and other folks who are much better at this sort of macro analysis than I will ever be probably on the program for this very reason. Um, so maybe maybe you can correct my thinking here if I'm making a mistake, but uh, I think it's it's just somehow interesting to me that you can have this incredible, ubiquitous, the world over demand for dollars, just constant, 24/7, 365 demand for dollars, and still get you know seven plus percent on the CPI just like that, and just like that is you know a year or two in the making, right? But still, here it is. Yeah, that that constant demand, in other words, like you, you know, it's constant. But you know, you you can still you know you can still make rents go up eighteen percent. You can still make you know stuff in general go up seven plus percent, right? Well, it's weird because I mean, thinking of it from a from a financial asset perspective, I mean, all financial assets by definition are held by somebody. So. It's all a relative basis game, basically, where, yeah, even though all financial assets are held by somebody, well, the demand on a relative basis can still decline. So, you know, when you compare everything today, for instance, to like, look at the boom in housing prices, I mean, the demand for real estate relative to, to holding dollars has gone way up. People would rather hold 
a real asset like a house on their balance sheet rather than holding the actual physical dollars. And so the a lot of that is just a, a relative demand function where we're seeing, especially in the short term, the relative demand for dollars versus, you know, especially things like real assets has declined. And so, you know, it, it doesn't mean that inflation can't happen. It just means that what you're going to see over time, especially in periods like, you know, such a disruptive period like COVID is that the demand for real assets increases in such a way that you end up getting a really meaningful rate of inflation in the short term, at least. All right. Um, I, th I feel like I could just go around and around with, with this stuff um, and, and you will indulge me. <laughs> um, but I, I want to I get to uh, what, what you're doing right now. If you've made any big portfolio changes like, you know, past year, past six months, anything that, that you think is, that you found that you think is really a cool idea uh, that you weren't doing last time we talked, let's say. You know, I've become increasingly bullish about, it's, it's actually funny, um, if I had to, um, when we posted our annual um, review earlier in January, I listed a series of assets that were attractive on a, you know, a, 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 the way I wrote it was basically most unattractive to least unattractive. Basically, my, my overarching view is that there are not a lot of great places to hide in the, in the entire asset world today. That when you look at, when you look at a lot of the, the different asset classes, you know, I think there is, I don't like to go into like the Jeremy Grantham super bubble type of mentality where you give the implication that like everything is overvalued and you need to be out of everything. Um, but there's a lot of truth to the fact that um, that everything is pretty expensive, whether you look at like real estate or the stock market or the bond market or, you know, even cryptocurrencies, like a lot of this stuff by by almost any measure has been on the sort of tear that makes it relatively unattractive going forward. And so to me, one of the few spaces that's been, you know, really beaten down or sort of stagnant in a really surprising way. And some people might be surprised to even hear this from me, but um, something like gold, gold and, and actual I, physical commodities look really attractive relative to a lot of other asset classes. And you can kind of you can kind of go down the list of things that haven't performed as well in the last sort of five to ten years as a lot of the hot, you know, sort of sector names like um, value versus growth, for instance, has been very a, a huge underperformer. If you're picking stuff in the stock market, things like very high quality, the the sort of boring old companies that people you know really fell out of love with in the last five to ten years i think look way more attractive today than than they ever have um so looking at kind of an international versus domestic perspective foreign stocks to me look much more attractive than domestic stocks and so a lot of the big trends that we've seen in the last especially the last five years or especially a lot of the trends that were sort of you know, hyper escalated from COVID where, you know, things like this, the, the continuum of like the tech boom occurring. Um, I would not be surprised if a lot of those trends reverse. And so 
at the same time, though, you know, I touched on this last time we talked. I, I think that given the way that the, the financial world is so overvalued across so many different spectrums, to me, the argument for an all-weather type of portfolio today is probably stronger than it's ever been. Um, like just looking at something that is a very sort of even like a boring sort of permanent portfolio, like Harry Brown's permanent portfolio, the, you know, he yeah. used to do 25% gold, 25% stocks, 25% cash and 25% treasury bonds. And that way you kind of covered all your bases in terms of potential outcomes. To me, that sort of perspective is is more valuable today than than trying to pick and choose exactly what the right place to be is because there's still really reasonable arguments that even picking out the components that look more attractive well you know what if what if we end up being wrong what if what if commodities you know what if we were to revert back to this sort of like low inflation environment in the next few years and commodities just sort of start to you know like muddle along again or something and at the same time the overvalued stock market actually deflates some and so you know you to me the 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 potential different outcomes in this environment given all the weirdness of covid are they're so wide like i think that in at no point in my career have I looked at all of the different asset classes and just have such a, a disparity in what the potential outcomes could be because the, the potential outcomes following COVID, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we had a, a high continued rate of inflation in the next five years. It also wouldn't surprise me if like you had this huge asset bust where you had this sort of suffocating yeah. deflation to some degree, you know, taking yeah. hold in the economy. And so, you know, looking at things from that perspective, I think it's um, it's more logical now than ever to look at something like a permanent portfolio type of view or an all weather type of view. And you have to be diversified because nobody knows what the hell is coming down the pike in the next couple of years. You know, Colin, I, I have to say, um... You, you sound a little like me. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. I've been preaching this. You must be diversified more now than ever thing for a, for a little while now. And of course, I've liked gold for a while. And and also, I've, I've been talking about value growth, XUS, you know. And as you were saying that, too, I thought, well, you, you're probably the guy I should ask, you know, are those cycles, um, you know, commodity stocks, uh, value growth, um, XUS, US. I, I brought this up in a piece that I wrote recently, and one of the one of our readers wrote back and said, "You know, that's just the dollar, Dan. All that's that's all the same cycle." And I thought, okay, but it's also human nature, isn't it? It's also like the the desire to to buy a whole lot more and allocate a whole lot more capital to what's worked recently. Yeah, and that starves the other side of of all of those trends. So eventually, you know, no matter how strong the dollar may or may not be, you got to have that other stuff or there will be demand for that other stuff. And starving it of investment creates an opportunity. No. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's in a lot of ways, that's one of the strongest arguments, I think, for 
the idea of owning something like either whether it's value stocks or um, foreign equities, for instance, or even real assets is that you are in some sense, you're hedging your currency exposure to some degree. Um, and I think a lot of people, especially investors in the United States, they, they take this very, I think, narrow focus where they take for granted how strong the dollar has always been. And they have typically a really strong home bias in terms of how their asset allocation breaks down. I mean, a lot of people who invest in the US, for instance, like if you put together like a 60-40 portfolio, like John Bogle for years argued that you don't even need to own foreign equities inside of a 60-40. And my view would be, well, that works great as long as the United States continues to be a really, really dominant reserve currency and, and global economy. But if you were to see that even wane in a relative sense, well, you'd start to see a, a pretty significant relative underperformance of the foreign um, or the U.S. versus the foreign stuff, in which case. Exactly. You will, yes. you, you will have loved owning, you know, a slice of the foreign stuff inside of, you know, whether it's your 60-40 or your, you know, your all-weather portfolio or whatever it is. Um, to me, I'm very wary of people with an extreme home bias um, because you can look through history and see periods where, I mean, again, this stuff ebbs and flows over time. And you can think of, if you think of even more extreme sort of regime changes, like consider the investor in London in year 1700, who, if they had had access to a Vanguard account, they would have looked at it and said, well, why in the world would I ever own, you know, stocks in other parts of the world? And the, the investor in the UK who took that perspective from the year 1700 to, you know, present day, they missed out on one of the biggest booms in economic history because they missed out on the US economy essentially developing. And so you can get these things of extreme home bias, you know, probably a better example, a much better example is the investor in Japan in like 1990 who took a, an extreme home bias. And so, yeah. you know, you can pick and choose this stuff and, you know, obviously you don't want to build a portfolio where, you know, you're you're just betting all in on like doom and gloom or like the collapse of a of a, a global empire or something like that. But again, it makes a lot of sense to be diversified because you don't like that's the beauty of the assets that we have access to today. You don't have to be all in on US stocks. You don't have to be all in on gold. You don't have to be all in. You can build these super diverse low fee portfolios that are really tax efficient that give you access to you know, this crazy amount of diversification and does so in a very, very sensible way where you're not, you're not, you don't have this like asymmetric downside to some outlier event that blows up you know, the US economy inside of a five or 10 year period or a longer period where you go through something like what Japanese equity investors have gone through for a lot of the last 30 years. Yeah. Sounds good to me, man. You're singing my song. You really are. Um, so we're. It's time for the for my final question. You've done this before, but I'll, I'll remind you. <laughs> um, it's the same question for every guest, no matter what the topic. And if you had to leave our listeners um, with just one thought today, what would that be? 
Um, <laughs> last time I said patience. Um, yeah. You know, my new company is literally called Discipline Fund. So I've become just a huge advocate of trying to apply this concept of discipline to people's portfolios where you find a portfolio that is not just appropriate for you from a financial planning perspective, meaning that it's likely to, to serve whatever your financial goals are in the long run. But more importantly, it's something that you can stay disciplined to. And I think that that's, especially in these more volatile environments, and we've seen this with you know, sort of some of the, the big booming, you know, funds in the last year that have done really well, that have since sort of seen some of the air come out of them, that people have a tendency to chase returns and they do it on the upside and they do it on the downside. And it's because essentially they don't have any built-in discipline inside of their portfolios. And to me, it's really important for people to understand that the the suboptimal portfolio that you can stick with, that you'll be disciplined to, will in all probability outperform the optimal portfolio that you can't remain disciplined to because you'll make catastrophic behavioral errors across time where you end up essentially buying high and constantly selling low. And this you know, revolving door of bad behavioral mistakes it not only compounds from a, a tax and fee perspective, but it compounds from you know, this huge behavioral impact that it keeps you treating your investment portfolio more like you're at a casino than you are actually putting together like a sensible financial planning-based asset allocation. So to me, more than anything, especially in these really volatile environments, you have to put together something that you can remain disciplined to because the, the portfolio you can stick with will, will serve you much better through thick and thin than the portfolio that, you know, is that elusive, perfect portfolio that you're constantly chasing and more often than not making mistakes around. Wow, that's a great one. That's a great answer. I've, I've told people investing is a very personal thing. And that sounds like what you're saying is, you know, you got to really think about who yeah. you are, what kind of a person you are. How are you, how are you likely to behave if you're, it's you know, if you're so US much of it, it's, so much of it yeah. is about knowing yourself and the, you know, the really like sort of sad thing that I, I constantly see throughout my career is I see a lot of people, they learn who they are at the worst times. And typically, you know, in a lot <laughs> of cases, they learn who they are in a period like 2008 or 2009 or a March 2020. And they don't, you know, I always say that the, the worst time to learn your risk profile is during a huge bear market. You want to learn your risk profile during a big bull market. And it's always frustrating to not get all of the upside. Um, but the trade-off is that you end up creating, in, a, in most cases, a much more stable long-term type of return that you're able to to sustain behaviorally. And so it ends up actually performing better for you than, you know, ch chasing where the grass always looks greener. Well said, my man. Thank you so much, man. I, I, I'm not going to wait as long next time <laughs> to get you back on the show. <laughs> I like having you around. Just thanks for everything. Those are great insights. I hope everybody takes them to heart. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me on. You bet. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. 
We say that a lot on this show, don't we? <laughs> but it's true. Uh, Colin is one of my favorite people to talk to because, you know, he started out saying he wasn't a very smart guy, but that's not the truth. The truth is he's smart enough to know the complicated situation and then just give you a very straightforward, easy to understand explanation of it. Um, and that's, re that's really why I wanted to have him back. I wanted to talk about the Fed and inflation and get his really good nuts and bolts viewpoint of these things. Um, and I think, I don't know, it was pretty clear to me. I hope you think it was pretty clear to you too. Also, I have to say, I know I'm tooting my own horn, but I love the fact that he, he's wound up at a similar place um, as me in terms of believing that diversification is more important than ever, wanting to have a little gold in the portfolio and paying attention to you know value growth, commodities versus stocks, uh, and ex-US stocks versus US stocks. I've, I've talked quite a bit about all three of those things here on the podcast and also in the Stansbury Digest. Really, really important right now. I think, uh, I think Colin Roach is a perfect guest for this moment, and I'm glad that uh, he was able to talk with us. All right, let's take a look at the mailbag. Let's do it right now. This may be difficult to hear, but it's time right now to take action to protect your wealth, or you could see 10 years of market gains disappear very quickly. If you haven't gotten your wake-up call yet, then I highly recommend you watch mine and Daniela Camboni's interview right away. You see, people are going to have to live with a crappy, stressful retirement, not be able to take care of themselves and their spouses, not be able to give their kids and grandkids the things they dreamed they would, and yet it's completely avoidable. You're hearing this right now out of my mouth, folks. An 80% market crash is probably on the way. In fact, it may have already begun. And it could be far worse than any previous crash because of the dangerous can't-lose mentality in so many assets today and the flood of novice investors in the markets since the start of the pandemic. Of course, there is one particular strategy that works extraordinarily well in moments like this. To be clear, you do not need to sell everything today or go all in on my approach. But I do think you'd be crazy not to at least consider putting 10 or 20% of your money into this strategy today. Stocks poised to not only beat runaway inflation, but benefit from it. For the full story, go online to danupdate.com. That website again is danupdate.com. In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Send questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read as many emails as time allows, and I respond to as many as possible. You can also call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. We got a lot of good emails this week. First up is Stephen H. And Stephen says, I've been enjoying the podcast for some time now. It's part of my routine when I go play hockey. <laughs> All right. Thanks for putting this out and selecting good guests. I have had a few things rattling around in my brain that I'd like to share. First, could we please stop referring to the changing value of our currencies as quote unquote inflation? This term sounds so benign and technical and legitimate. I propose that for the foreseeable future, we should refer to the change as, quote unquote, currency debasement. 
From what I can see in the world, the primary driver of the change for the past decade, at least, has been currency debasement. When that ceases to be the case, perhaps we can go back to using a technocratic term like inflation. Second, it might be worth noting that the proximate cause of the French Revolution was a sovereign debt crisis. And then he does quite a bit of explaining, and he wonders, he says, I wonder where the USA will go after its impending sovereign debt crisis. Hmm. And finally, Stephen H. says, I think your listeners should have a read of Lewis Carroll's The Walrus and the Carpenter, perhaps after they've been doing some financial analysis and calculating free cash flow and they need a break. To be clear, you, me, and your listeners should think of ourselves as the oysters, not the walrus or the carpenter. Take care and keep up the good work, Stephen H. I haven't read The Walrus and the Carpenter yet. I will get right on it as soon as we're done recording here. And as far as the other two go, um, yeah, I, I hear you on inflation. We're, we, they, they've even told us, the Fed has said, you know, a certain amount of inflation is good, which is crazy. Um, so I agree. The term is just, it's lost its... It's zip. It's lost its impact. Um, and as far as the U.S. having a sovereign debt crisis, all I'll say is that printing the reserve currency means you can issue a lot more debt than everybody else. So you should you should count on that happening. They'll do it, and it'll and the sovereign debt crisis in the U.S. will probably take a lot longer to come around than most people would ever dream. But it's good to think about it, and it's good to worry about it a little bit. Next comes Levi N. And Levi N. is talking about free cash flow, and he says, Hi, first as always, thanks for all you do. Just finished listening to your analysis on free cash flow from the most recent podcast. Was wondering if you could take it one step further and maybe also include this to the subsequent analysis. Understand the raw numbers of free cash flow, their importance, etc., but what about their relative value? Do you compare the free cash flow to market cap, enterprise value, outstanding debt, et cetera, et cetera? I know you can compare to anything you want, but question is, what do you value most? What comparison do you value most, he says? Then maybe comparison to like businesses? Really, how do you use the number in your assessment? Thanks again, Levi N. Levi, um, the primary thing I wanted to get across was just to know that you're looking for companies that generate plenty of free cash flow. That's the primary thing consistently. Um, and as far as the comparisons, like we don't do free cash flow to market cap or EV or outstanding debt or any of that stuff because it doesn't, it, it, that is not the, the key metric. The key thing is to do what I, I believe the key thing is to be able to do a real free cash flow, discounted cash flow analysis and, and arrive at some reasonable estimate of either the intrinsic value of the business or the way we think of it is that is the growth expectations built into the current value based on you know where the stock price is today versus you know what management is saying they can do versus what we think they can do there's it gets complicated pretty quick there's a lot of moving parts but um, the basic parts are operating margin, free cash flow, uh, revenue growth. And we, you know, Mike Barrett actually runs the model and he does a lot of work um, to arrive at our, our estimate for what kind of growth we think we can expect versus what the market is expecting. That's how we do it. We don't go free cash flow to market cap. That's, those multiples are too simplified and they, they 
at, at best, they're a substitute for the process we use. But over, over time, I've come to believe they're a poor substitute. But thank, thank you, Levi. That, that's a good thing to ask about. Next comes Aussie Stu from Down Under. Stu, good to hear from you. It's been a while. Uh, and Stu says, still haven't missed an episode. Great stuff. A few questions. Russia invades Ukraine. The markets rally huge 3% or more on the day. Gold dropped. What? Can you explain this? He says, I'm getting very frustrated with my gold and silver mining stocks and gold and silver. After hanging on through all the supposed tailwinds for gold, I'm thinking I'd be much farther ahead plowing it all into Bitcoin. Bitcoin was up 6% on the week and gold down 1%. I have read gold has actually lost over 30% of its value over the last 11 years due to the debasement of the USD. Um, compare this to Bitcoin. Thoughts? Also, I have bought some of your crown jewels in extreme value. Let's hope they help my lagging mining portfolio. Haha. <laughs> Thanks in advance, Dan. Keep up the great work. Aussie Stu. Stu, I think you may have misspoken here. You said... I think I have read that gold has actually lost over 30% of its value over the last 11 years due to the debasement of the USD. Maybe you mean due to the appreciation of the USD? I, I'm not sure um, otherwise what that could possibly mean. Gold is priced in dollars. Therefore, when one is going up versus, you know, the other versus that, you know, if the price of gold goes up, that means dollars are less valuable relative to it. And if the price of gold goes down, dollars are more value, right? They're always traveling in opposite directions because one is priced in the other, right? So I don't quite know what you're getting that there, but I don't, you know, I don't, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, if I look at an 11 year chart of gold, um, it was about 1400 bucks 11 years ago. And, you know, it spiked up to 1900 in 2011, which was neat. And then it crashed to 1000 which was less neato. And then it went up to 2000 made a new high um, in 2020. And now it's, you know, in the high 1900s as we speak. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Is it headed for a new high? You'll never get me predicting anything like that because I don't do predictions at all. I just think you should hold gold and silver and forget you own them forever. As far as gold and silver mining stocks, I still think you can buy them. And I think they're a great, great deal for the next five, 10 years. I think you can expect a pretty decent performance. So, you know, that's what I think. And as far as Bitcoin goes, um, look, what I mostly see is Bitcoin falling at times when if it were a store of value or better than gold, it should be rising, right? I, I, there were times when it rose recently when I thought, okay, this is it. It's going to start acting like a risk-off asset right now. But mostly it acts like a risk-on speculation, technology speculation, you know? I mean, over the past week, I'm just looking at a one-week chart here in Coinbase, minus 3.5%. So I don't know. And, you know, gold is up. But those short-term movements that you're talking about there, one day, this one-day movement that you talked about, you know, where the market was down and gold was down, the market was up during the invasion of Ukraine, meaningless. One-day moves are meaningless. You don't know what's going on. Uh, and one week is not much more meaningful. Um, sorry, I know that's unsatisfying, but that's the way it is. But you sh these are good things to think about anyway. Ellen is next. And Ellen says, good morning, Dan. 
Thank you for your dedication to sharing relevant content and your educational insights through the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast. I became a Stansberry Alliance member a year ago and quickly overindulged in too many positions like a kid in a candy shop. Over time, I have chosen my favorite newsletters, Extreme Value being one of them. Thank you, Ellen. And have been using trailing stops and sell alerts to exit positions that don't fit my long-term plan. I uh, Let's see. Then she says, I was also planning to increase my position sizing in stocks that I want to hold forever, or at least very long term, 10 plus years, as prices come down either through a correction or a bear market. I thought this was a good plan until I read the February 5th Daily Wealth Trader description of averaging down versus scaling in. And I'm wondering if these strategies are only relevant to short term trading or for all investments, including long-term forever stocks? Can you shed some, shed some light on your thoughts about when and how one would increase positions in extreme value-style stocks, especially for those of us who are holding a considerable cash allocation? There are so many possibilities, lump sum investing, dollar cost averaging, buying the dip, cheap hated and in an uptrend, etc. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you again, Ellen. Well, Ellen, you know, you get 90% of my thoughts in extreme value, first of all. Um, and as far as Daily Wealth Trader, you know, actually Ben and Drew are great at what they do. Um, but those things are, they, you know, apply them to their strategy. They do short-term and medium-term, and I think the occasional long-term. But I, I think they're mostly focused on the short and medium-term. But whatever they are, they'll tell you, and you can read the publication, and it tells you. Um, so... As far as averaging down, basically what I hear is, when do I average down? When do I increase positions in extreme value type stocks, is what you're asking. Um, we generally tell you, you know, we'll raise a buy up to price or we'll say, you know, this stock is down 20%, but we think you can still buy it. Um, and that really, that's my best answer. Now, there's another component here, Ellen, and that is you. You need to make a decision about how much money you want to have in anything. And I can't do that for you because it's not generic. You can't just pull it off the shelf and it's the same for everybody. You need to decide how much money you want to have in certain kinds of stocks and bonds and whatever else, anything else, land, whatever, commodities, I don't know, futures, options, anything. Those decisions are yours to make, and they're based on your knowledge of yourself and your understanding of how risky those things are. And futures and options are super duper risky. You probably shouldn't go anywhere near them. And um, you, you need to think about this and decide your risk tolerance and decide how much you're comfortable having in anything. And what kind of an investor are you, Right. Uh, take an extreme example. We know what kind of investor Warren Buffett is, don't we? We know exactly what kind of investor he is. He made that decision years and years ago, and it's evolved, and he's done some different things here and there. But mostly, he's a guy who's looking for a great business that he can just buy once and hold on to forever. And uh, so you need to decide you know, what kind of investor, how much of your portfolio is like that? How much of your portfolio is forever versus you know, out at the first sign of trouble. I, I, I know some of these answers are really unsatisfying, but it really is true in my opinion. Okay. Next up and last this week is David S. 
And David S. says, I really enjoyed your latest interview with Marco Papich, as well as the one with Rob Arnott. I'm a huge fan of everything Stansberry Research, but as busy as I've been the last few months, I failed to notice until recently that much to my disappointment, you guys put an end to the Big Trade publication, which was, of course, predominantly about establishing short positions due to consistent underperformance in the face of a relentless bull market. Could this yet be another sign that a top is upon us, or at least imminent? I'm going to answer that part first, uh, David, because uh, maybe, maybe not. I would hesitate. I mean, we have so many publications, and publications come and go. It's definitely a sign that it's been really, really hard to be on the short side um, for the last decade or more. Um, but, you know, you, you won't ever hear me calling a top. That's certainly the type of thing that happens around the top, right? But I don't know. I, you, you, it's going to be hard to ever get me to say absolutely yes to a question like that. All right, moving on here. Um, David then says, frankly, I'm surprised by the decision. I understand there's pressure to generate positive returns to keep the subscriber base happy, but throwing in the towel seems like just the sort of thing you would expect average investors to do, just when the opposite approach is probably more appropriate. After all, as Rob Arnett suggested, we should aim for maximum pain at both ends of the cycle. Easier said than done, of course, but it seems to me now is a better time than ever to start placing some shorts on the worst of the worst of the zombie companies. Keep up the fantastic work. Kind regards, Alliance member David S., you know, David, that thing about average investors doing this sort of thing, um, I, I, I hear you. It does look that way. but and, and it's good of you guys to, you know, look at how the business interacts with, you know, the, the content of the publications. That's smart. Um, I don't know if I would read too much in here. I've, I've had publications that I thought could have had a really good track record and I just sucked wind and the thing had to be shut down because nobody wanted it anymore. And I thought, you know, I could have turned it around. I definitely could have turned it around in one case. Um, but you know, there's a, there, it's a complicated thing, David, let's just leave it, leave it at that. You know, there's a decision at, at the management level and I'm 3000 miles away from that. I'm 3000 miles away from the mothership I don't, I'm not in on those decisions, nor should I be, um, unless they affect me absolutely directly. And even then, management does what it wants, right? This is a business. Um, so I, I hear you wanting to read into this, but the only thing I'm really comfortable reading in is that we couldn't, we could no longer um, offer this publication uh, without hurting our business, so we decided to close it down. That's the only thing I can be sure of. Um, and yes, it's the type of thing that happens after 11 or plus years or however many years it's been here. Oh, gosh, since 2009, 13, you know, the, the unpleasantness of March 2020, notwithstanding, you know, 13 years of bull market um, and the current unpleasantness, notwithstanding, uh, you know, it's it's exactly the kind of thing I'd expect. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did. Put it that way. If we had shut it down three years ago, would it have been a sign at the top? Well, you know, maybe in a short term basis, right? 
These are good things to think about, though, David, and you're, you're, you're kind of smart to pose a question like this. We got one last week in a similar vein, and, and I, I'm glad that you folks are thinking. You're on your toes. I like it. So that's another mailbag, and that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We do provide a transcript for every episode. I got another email this week. I get one or two every week about transcripts. We do provide transcripts for every episode. It may take a little bit of time to get up on the website, but it's all, it'll always be there eventually. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript and enjoy. And you know, a good transcript takes a little time. We really try to make a good transcript, so it might take a little time. But if you like this episode and you know anybody who might enjoy listening to the show, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at InvestorHour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at InvestorHour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour you have a guest you want me to interview, just drop me a note at feedback at investorhour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email. Feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network.